How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts, live from the Expo Floor 2022. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. We are coming to you from beautiful Orlando, Florida, and we have a fantastic podcast series set up this year for you with some of the greatest minds in the industry. So unless you've been living under a rock for the last five years or so, you have certainly heard about the Stop the Bleed campaign. I think we would all agree that the campaign has made a huge impact on training the civilian population in life-saving techniques against exsanguination. But you may also be wondering, why are we talking about Stop the Bleed at a conference filled with professionals who know exactly how to do that? My guest today is prepared to dive into that and many other questions over the next 20 minutes. Dr. Matthew Levy is the chair of the nonprofit Stop the Bleed Coalition. He's a strong advocate for this initiative and was the architect behind one of the very first countywide Stop the Bleed programs in the nation. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the medical director of the Howard County Fire Rescue Department. Doc, thanks for coming on. Mike, great to see you. Great to speak with you. Thank you. So, why don't we roll out here as we begin this uh, as we begin this podcast, really just explaining how the Stop the Bleed campaign came to fruition. No, I'd be happy to, and uh, and I thank you for the intro. You know, Stop the Bleed is is really about a lot of different things, um, and let me just kind of take it apart piece by piece for a second and talk about where we're at, uh, how we got to where we're at, as you've asked. Stop the Bleed really hails uh, from the origins of the military's lessons learned on the battlefield. Um, Nearly 30 years ago, when I was in EMT school, my EMT instructor taught and preached that tourniquets were a four-letter word. That's right. <laughs> and um, thou shall never, or That's thou shall be, you know, in a world of trouble. Yep. And and uh, generations of EMS providers, clinicians, and emergency responders were taught that. Um, and and there was some reason why, because way back when those tourniquets were probably ineffective and probably caused as much damage as, as they as they did help. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan really taught us that a couple of different things. They taught us that that as advances in body armor and advances in other technologies to protect the core of the body and the head and central nervous system got better and better, the extremities remained exposed and vulnerable. And injury patterns began to show that. And they began to find in the military that there were people who were dying of preventable hemorrhage. And if you've heard of the, the, the concept of tactical combat casualty care and the zones of care and the work that, um, that, that the folks uh, have done in the, in the TCCC arena, it really focuses on fixing and addressing preventable death. And when it comes to arguably one of the most impactful ways that we can fix or prevent death and trauma, right? So there are certain things we would all agree are not fixable. Right. There are certain things where the injury pattern is so devastating that injury is just not compatible with life. And that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. We're talking about a subset of injuries, a subset where there's nearly, you know, where, where these patients are dying from something that could have been prevented, and that something is bleeding. 
right? And, and by the numbers, it's pretty remarkable. You know, it's hard to talk about this and not talk about epidemiology. I'll try not to geek out too much, but give me 30 <laughs> seconds, right? So you have that. So we know that trauma is the leading cause of death of people under the age of 45. Everyone has probably heard that soundbite. People have taken that test, they know that. Yes. And if you've been in EMS any amount of time, you know that as well. Within that subset, uh, both the military lessons learned and larger lessons learned in, in trauma epidemiology tell us that people are dying of a couple different things. And hemorrhage remains the single biggest cause of preventable death. Now, what does that mean? That's hemorrhage of all types. Internal hemorrhage is its own set of challenge. Sure. Internal hemorrhage and thoracoabdominal hemorrhage is its own set of challenge. And we would all agree the best thing we can do is design and implement EMS systems that include rapid transport and the most cutting edge resuscitative processes for those people. But what about external hemorrhage? What about hemorrhage from an arm or a leg or from a scalp lack? Right. Those things bleed really badly. What about hemorrhage from a junctional area where the, where the, where the extremity attaches to the, to the core, the torso of the body? And so Stop the Bleed really got its birth and its genesis from these military lessons learned, which showed that if we focused on early hemorrhage control, we can improve survival and outcomes in this subset of patients. You know, it's, it makes all the sense in the world, Doc. We, we've looked at this, you know, and I think a lot of things, like you say, have come to the forefront after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and the need to be better prepared, not just as an industry, but as a nation. And also we see so many active shooter incidents occurring on a daily basis in this country, and it's not getting better, it's getting worse. And, I, and, and I'm curious, what impact is the Stop the Bleed campaign having on that, and what is the intent? It's, a, it's such an awesome question, uh, and I think a lot of people tend to hardwire stop the bleed and bleeding control with active shooter mm -hmm. for some reason. Uh, and, and indeed, when we look at, d at death analyses and we look at preventable death following these events, there is a subset of those patients that could have survived with bleeding control interventions. But what I think it's important that everybody understands and everybody knows, and as our audience, that you can help with this narrative, is you will by far, hands down, provide more bleeding control interventions on cases of everyday trauma sure. and everyday car, you know, motor vehicle crashes, pedestrian trucks, workplace accidents. My first, as an EMT, way back when in the mid-90s, my first severe bleeding call was a kid who put his arm through a plate glass window. Correct. And he was in full-blown shock. And I had never seen shock before. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what this is, but it's not good. Yeah. And, and, and all we could do is try to hold pressure. And, and, and we, we, we're going to come back to that in a second because it's an important piece of the history here. But what I would share with you, as you said, is that as society has gotten more violent, as we've seen a rise in intentional harm, intentional events, we know that, um, that these interventions become even more important. And you said something else that's really interesting I want to get back to. You, you said, as you use the word society and as a nation. And, and if one of my mentors, Dr. Rick Hunt, uh, who's a thought leader in, in, in this space uh, and was on the National Security Council when Stop the Bleed was given the green light to go forward, if Rick was here, he would say Stop the Bleed is really about resilience. It's about making us more resilient as a society. It's about giving us more ability to help and to help and to do something, right. to help the helpers be helpers. And that's really what it's about. Yeah, for sure. And I think that th there's, there's definitely a tie-in now because, there, as we said, there's so many things going on in this, in this country right now, not the least of which is the fact that we're finding ourselves with a great shortage when it comes to personnel in this profession. We're losing people quicker than we can replace them. 
And the fact of the matter is, we really need to start relying on the civilians to handle something if there is going to be a built-in delay in response. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, we, we know that, um, that the helpers are out there. They're going to do bystander CPR. Who are these helpers? They're the people who help no matter what the problem is. They're the people who help change your tire. Right. They're the people who help jumpstart your car. They're the people, they're your good neighbors, right? In some cases, they're your friends and family. And that notion and that that uh, concept has really been pushed forward uh, in the CPR community to try to engage people in CPR training. And there's a lot of metaphoric similarities between Stop the Bleed training and CPR training in terms of getting it out there and getting it known. Um, and, and so what I would say is, yeah, we, we need active bystander engagement, or as I like to refer to them as immediate responders. Um, Bystander, that term, implies passiveness. It implies um, uh, avoidance. uh, It applies, you know, standing by. We need people who are going to be actively engaged, be immediate responders. And, you know, you can build, you know, we were talking a minute offline before we started, you you could build the most premier, high-speed, ultra-equipped, EMS and trauma system with field blood and RSI and and integrated systems of care and all these things. And if the first arriving resources get there and the person is dead, all for none. It's all for none. So So let's build a society where we can have people empowered with the knowledge, the training, and in some cases the equipment to provide that immediate intervention so we can give people the best outcome possible. And it's interesting because when we talk about um, the lay rescue, or uh, if you will, or the civilian type that we're teaching, it's not just that. You, you know, I, I was involved in training the New Jersey State Police in in their bleeding control officer down. We can't forget the fact that, and we always take pot shots at cops, right? I mean, that's what we do in the in the medical field. But they're not proficient in that. That's not te- technically their job. And I can tell you this: after training those folks in in bleeding control and ways to sustain life. They have come back to me probably five or six times explaining about how they used a tourniquet on a motor vehicle accident, on a motor vehicle accident, on a motor vehicle accident. Never on the stabbing, never on the shooting. So just like you said, I think you have that that, that kind of thought process where, oh, yeah, it's always going to be a gunshot. It's always going to be a knife wound or whatever else. They're using them every day on the highway. And though it's really important that if we didn't train them, there's a very good chance that that person would have bled out in the vehicle on Route 80. And, and in fact, when we look at and we help organizations, departments, uh, agencies get online with, with layered stop-to-bleed programs, and I'll get, when I say layered, I mean uh, everyone knows what to do mm-hmm. and everyone has some ability to help. Right? So whether it's law enforcement as your first responder, whether it's a third party, whether it's a citizen off-duty or, or a member of the public or the community, whoever it is, um, they can start to do something until help arrives and slow that death process. You know, it's interesting. When I teach trauma care and when I, when I uh, teach our medics, uh, uh, the medics who work for me uh, in, in my jurisdictions as, as, you know, in terms of how, what our approach to trauma care should be, one of my favorite slides that I put up is a slide of the Grim Reaper. <laughs> Why? What does the Grim Reaper have to do with Stop the Bleed? Well, it has to do with time. And the problem is that you think you have time. And the dying process has already started. Now, that being said, not all bleeding needs a tourniquet. And not all bleeding needs hemostatic gauze. But when you need a tourniquet, you need a tourniquet. And you need hemostatic gauze, you need it. So what I would offer to the reader, to listeners, and to those following along is I would say, you know, as you're teaching this, as you're experiencing this, 
we tend to think of things in terms of binary logic in EMS. If this, do that. Right. If this, do that. If this, give drug that, that kind of thing. And, and so, so what we need to do as part of the teaching of Stop the Bleed is teach what severe and life-threatening bleeding looks like. And that's really hard to do sometimes. So a big part of Stop the Bleed education is helping people understand what is life-threatening bleeding and what isn't. And we don't talk about bright red pulsatile blood because you know what? I've seen just as many people go into uh, severe shock from venous bleeding. Of course. Right? So, so we... It's brisk bleeding. It's bleeding that won't stop with direct pressure. It's clothes that are soaked uh, in blood. It's blood pooling on the ground. It's people with signs of obvious shock or altered mental status or agitation and severe bleeding. Those are the ones who need that immediate intervention. And so it becomes really important uh, for our listeners, as you are spreading the message about this, That and, and many of our listeners are Stop the Bleed instructors, and, and this is an interesting tidbit, there are more medics and EMTs and nurses teaching Stop the Bleed than there are docs. And you know what? That's really, really warming to my heart. As someone who was an EMT and still is a card-carrying EMT and a paramedic for, for, for a long time now, um, we have an opportunity to make a real difference in our communities with this. And again, we're practical and we're realistic about this. Uh, and, and so building layers of response into a community is so important. And you're exactly right. Uh, everyone is tired. Everyone is uh, has been through the ringer over the past few years with the pandemic. We're seeing a lot of workforce attrition and turnover. And, and boy, I could tell you, it doesn't matter how tired you are and how, how, how challenging a situation may be, when you have that call and you get that surge of adrenaline and you know you've helped save a life, there's no better recharge of the batteries than that. There, there really isn't. And one thing that I, I, I'm curious about in, from your perspective is what about the fear involved? So like you, you have the folks that you, you, you work to empower them, but what about the fear that's involved where, well, I don't know if this requires a tourniquet, yeah. right? Yeah. So practically speaking and pragmatically speaking, we would say, if you're not sure, put the tourniquet on. You and I both have seen wounding injuries in our in our careers and patients that got a tourniquet that probably didn't need it. But if we get that, if we assess that and we get that tourniquet off pretty quickly, even in the hospital and trauma bay, uh, the probability of harm is pretty low if we do it quickly. And one of the earliest things we had to do in the Stop the Bleed campaign was combat that information. A little bit of misinformation or misunderstood information. You know, you put a tourniquet on someone's arm, you are not committing them to losing that extremity. Rather, you're possibly, uh, hopefully, sustaining life. Um, but, but to your point that there are some nuances to how we teach Stop the Bleed to help demystify and unpack that and, and, and make sure that people understand that. Uh, because because of, of the exact reason that you've said, right? People are apprehensive. They're scared. There's uh, an older generation. I'm sorry to say we are now the older generation, Mike. <laughs> I know. I hate to say it. Terrible. Um, um, speaking of which... EMS supervisors call me here, See, but there you uh, go. but um, but we there you know there's an older generation uh, that was told never ever ever shall I use a tourniquet. I think we've all kind of we we now understand and appreciate it. But what's really cool is our newer generation of medics and EMTs and even docs believe it to be part of the bundle of care, and that's exactly what we wanted to do. And and, and so um, you know as we think about these things and how do we change opinions and change messaging, uh, it takes. It takes having a good narrative. It takes understanding the science and the data and admitting, and this is, I think, the part that people sometimes get frustrated with in EMS, is, is we are now in the year 2022 a subspecialty of medicine. Okay? EMS medicine is a board-certified subspecialty of medicine. I am a board-certified EMS physician, as are several hundred, if not nearly over a thousand of my colleagues across the country. And, and so we are practicing medicine. 
our EMTs and medics are practicing medicine under our supervision. Right. And, and so as evidence and science changes, medicine is an art and a science, we have to change with it. And that can be exhausting. And what I tell our new folks is, we're preparing you to be lifelong learners in your career. And what you learned once, you're gonna unlearn and relearn again, and, 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 and as more data comes out, it's exhausting, but that's what we owe to our patients. Absolutely. With, with this getting more visibility and more traction, and, and I'm speaking of the Stop the Bleed campaign, sure. how can EMS assist to push this yeah. forward? Um, I believe that in EMS, we, we have a bit of a, a self-image problem, to be quite candid. I think that we have been told that we are not as cool as some of the other kids on the block. Truth. Um, but I would challenge you to this statement. We are invited into people's homes all hours of the day and night in all conditions. Some not so good, some, some amazing. And people trust us with their deepest, darkest secrets and their most embarrassing moments. So don't ever underestimate the value of public trust that they have in their EMS system. And we can use that public trust for important messaging and important prevention activities, and we really should. I believe if you're running an EMS system or you're part of an EMS system, you should be part of a prevention activity. Does that mean you have to spend all your time doing prevention? No, but being part of prevention is an important part of this. We're not gonna put EMS out of business. Don't worry about that. No. That's, it's actually job security if we do this. And if we can be involved in some of these um, so some of these community education programs and, and helping implement programs, be it Stop the Bleed, be it Compressions Only CPR, be it Naloxone training, there's a couple other examples. We can foster a more resilient community. We can build better trust between the community and EMS, and we can help our patients have the best outcomes. Doc, you're doing great work in every single facet of what you're doing, which is quite a bit. And there's, listen, there's still a lot of work that can be done. And, you know, I, I thank you for coming on with us today just to share a little bit about this and, and the importance of it. Thank you so much. Mike, if I could, I would, I would ask all of our uh, listeners if they want to check out Stop the Bleeding, uh, Stop the Bleed Coalition. Org. That's StopTheBleedCoalition.org, one word. That's our website. You can get a lot more information. And uh, we got some really cool things planned uh, in the very near future there, too. So cool, Doc. I really do appreciate you coming on, Dr. Matthew Levy. We will hear a lot more from him in the future. And you'll hear a lot more from us on the Expo floor. So thanks for listening. And we will talk to you real soon on the next episode of EMS World Podcast. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 